Welcome to another edition of the Jamie Dury Show. Yes, those of you who listened to the last show we did at the beginning of the month, we've been running around since the Labor Day holiday, uh, are aware that we've changed the name of the show from the previously NPO podcast to the Jamie Dury Show. There are several reasons for that. One, we haven't revealed yet, but we will within the next week or so, I suspect. But one of the other principal reasons why we changed the name is that anytime we received inquiries or reviews, uh, people were not referencing the NPO podcast or National Preview Online. They were instead referencing me, the host, Jamie Dury, saying, thank you, Jamie, or good job, Jamie, uh, uh, or keep up the good work or something like that. But they were always uh, referencing it to me. And so I decided that in the model of many other successful radio talk shows and podcasters, we'd simply call it by name, you know, of the host, the Jamie Dury Show, just like Dan Bongino, who has a very successful podcast, simply calls it the Dan Bongino Show. And Rush Limbaugh, the greatest radio talk show host of all time, uh, the late, great Rush Limbaugh, called his show the Rush Limbaugh Show. So we're going to follow suit. I wanted to talk a little bit today about vaccination mania and how it is taking over every facet of our lives and how we're allowing ourselves to be beguiled, not by our minds, not by an analytical analysis of the facts before us or the medical evidence, but rather by propaganda that is being carefully packaged in an effort to manipulate the population. Look at these stories that are in the Epic Times just today, uh, and elsewhere, not just the Epic Times, but the Epic Times seems to cover these things very, very well. We have all manner of vaccine uh, phobias. Now, let's leave the United States for a moment and talk about what's going on in Australia. Because Australia, the Australian media has been all over this, uh, really taking issue with the prime ministers and the people, I guess, who govern these various provinces like New South Wales and uh, um, Queensland and all like that, saying that the number of cases that they've been having, which are very low, does not justify these draconian uh, measures that are being taken by the government with respect to the deprivation of people's personal freedoms. Now, here we have that the greater Sydney area is to get freedoms, quote, once 70% of the state has been vaccinated. You have been warned. State leader pushes for more vaccinations. Let me read some pull quotes from this article. This is from the New South Wales government in Australia, announcing that fully vaccinated residents of Sydney and the area immediately surrounding it will begin getting their freedoms back once 70% of the state's population is vaccinated, which is supposedly going to take place in October. The fact that they're saying you're going to get your freedoms back is an acknowledgement on their part that they've taken freedoms from you. Uh, it says the, the state premier, that's what they call these people that run the states, Gladys, uh, I don't even know how you pronounce this, Brazilian, announced that the roadmap would see the state's progress out of a lockdown. Okay, quote, We've also had input from our health experts and stakeholders to make sure that when we start reopening, it's at 70% double dose, that it's done in a safe way. 
This she told reporters on the 9th of September, noting that freedoms would be granted on the first Monday after the target is reached. And it's only for people who are vaccinated. So you have been warned. This is exactly what direct quote. You have been warned. If you are not vaccinated, come forward and get the vaccine. Otherwise, you won't be able to participate in the many freedoms that people have at 70% vaccination. The Premier said that once 80% of the population was vaccinated, more freedoms would be available around major events. The freedoms to be opened once the 70% benchmark was reached include retail stores, hair salons, gyms, however. They will only be accessible to those with two doses. Now, let me ask you this question. If this vaccine, if these vaccines are so great, as they want you to believe, and so necessary to normalcy returning to our lives, if 70 or 80% of the population is vaccinated, we have to assume that 70 or 80% of the population is now relatively safe, yes? Because they're going to give them all these freedoms back. Well, if the remaining 20 to 30% don't want to take the vaccine... Whose business is it besides theirs? The only person or persons being placed at risk are those people who have voluntarily elected not to take the vaccine. I mean, they're the only ones who are going to get sick, right? If they have it, who are they giving it to? People who are vaccinated, who are ostensibly protected? I mean, how long do we want to take this thing? You know, at a certain point, you get a case of what is known as diminishing returns. It's simple mathematics. Take a pot, a container, and fill it with coffee, black coffee, dark liquid. Now, if you remove half of the contents of that container and replace it with clear water, you have a substantial alteration of the landscape inside that container. You now have a container that contains 50% coffee and 50% water, and it's going to look much lighter, markedly different. So you, you obtain a 50% improvement on the first go-around of 50% removal of water. However, if you take 50% of that content, remove it, and replace it with water, now you only have a 25% reduction in the amount of coffee. It's half, half of half. So you still have one quarter coffee and three quarters water. If you take another 50% out and replace it, now you're down to 12 and a half. Now, my point is you can keep doing this and you can keep doing this, but you're never going to eliminate all the coffee. And you have to do, make greater and greater uh, efforts for less and less benefit. At some point, you have to say that it's not worth it. At some point here, we have to say it's not worth it, particularly when we're talking about a virus that has an overall survival rate of above 97% or more. In many cases, 99%, depending on what age group you're in. And the people who are at risk, those are the people who might be advised to take a vaccine. Those of us who are not at risk uh, shouldn't be forced to take it. So this is a canard, and particularly when you get involved with this Delta variant that everyone is so up in arms about. In my own building where I live in Manhattan, the co-op board is absolutely idiotic. There's only one man on the board who has a reasonable attitude, and he was outvoted. 
They're all panicking over this Delta variant. Why? The mortality rate of the Delta variant is eight hundredths of one percent. Eight hundredths of one percent. That's so low, it's very difficult to even measure it. Eight hundredths of one percent. That's eight deaths for every 10,000 cases. And it's a foregone conclusion that the overwhelming majority of those eight people had pre-existing conditions. And now we're getting from Dr. Fauci, contrary to what most people probably assumed when they hear the word vaccine. See, most people, when they hear the word vaccine, assume that they're being given an injection of either a weakened or dead virus of the virus they're trying to be inoculated against. And this is going to allow their metabolism to form antibodies to that virus so that if the virus attempts to enter their system, it can't gain a foothold because the body fights it off. And therefore, they don't get sick. Well, with the exception of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, the Pfizer, Moderna, and the AstraZeneca vaccines, they don't use antibodies. If I had known a little more about this stuff, everybody was pushing the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine. People were saying the Johnson & Johnson vaccine wasn't as good. If I had known, I would have gotten the Johnson & Johnson vaccine just to get the antibodies. These things are using DNA technology, things that never been done, but it meets a very loose definition of vaccine that the CDC in this country utilizes because it is something that supposedly lessens your susceptibility to it, and if you get it, um, you won't get it in a severe form, but there's no guarantee you won't get it. So I think a lot of people were beguiled into thinking getting this vaccine protected them from getting the virus, and are probably pretty upset to find that that's not the case. And so we have all of this going on, and Australia is really taking it to the extreme. They've had nowhere near the number of deaths that we have had being an island nation and being very, very restrictive in who can come and who can't come into the country. That it's ridiculous. But telling the population you've been warned, uh, if you don't do it, you're not going to get these freedoms. The chief health officer, Dr. Kerry Chant, said that the New South Wales health authorities would need to improve contract tracing measures to keep up with change with COVID. We're going to have to work on a number of those things and redesign what our trace, test, and isolate policies are in the future. This is unbelievable, what they're planning on doing. And you can't question it. You can't even question it. Because if you do question it, they come down on you. Just ask Dr. Paul Osterhuis, I believe if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. He's a Sydney-based anesthetist, we sometimes call anesthesiologists in this country, who questioned the efficacy of vaccines and health restrictions, including lockdowns. He has had his registration as a physician suspended by the state's medical authorities for daring to question the efficacy of the vaccines. He's been a medical practitioner for over 30 years, and he was brought before the New South Wales Medical Council uh, earlier this month following two, quote-unquote, anonymous complaints lodged against him regarding his social media activity. So now the man is not even allowed to be a private person and express an opinion on social media. Because he's a doctor, he's now um, lost his right to free speech. But we have to remember, this is Australia. They don't have the right to free speech uh, the way we, in there or in England like we do here in the United States. And that's probably not a very good thing. Um, this according to Doctors for COVID Ethics, quote, in the social media posts 
this is him speaking, for which I face a medical board hearing, I discussed issues such as early treatment and prophylaxis against COVID-19, evidence for government measures such as lockdowns and PCR tests, and evidence regarding risk-benefit analyses of COVID-19 vaccines. He said he also questioned the evidence underpinning government policies on mask mandates and lockdowns and claimed there was evidence vaccines had low effectiveness and real risks and harms. Over the last 18 months, I have been increasingly concerned about the misinformation and censorship creeping into science and medicine. The New South Wales Medical Council confirmed that the doctor's registration was suspended on the same day under Section 150 of the Health Practitioner Regulation National Law, which allows the council to suspend a practitioner's registration immediately. I don't think his registration was suspended because of anybody alleging medical malpractice. The man expressed an opinion, and it's an informed opinion. (coughs) As an experienced health practitioner with over 30 years of practice and a lot of education behind him, I think he has a right to express an opinion. The Medical Council would not release any further details regarding the procedure. So this is ridiculous. This is the sort of thing that's being flouted about as fair treatment. But it's not just in Australia that these things are happening. Here in the United States, under pressure from what I would argue is the most powerful union in this country, the United Federation of Teachers, the CDC is now issuing tighter and tighter mask uh, guidance after a prominent teachers union pressured the agency to include more rigorous mask recommendations in school buildings, according to newly obtained emails by the watch group Americans for Public Trust. These emails were obtained through a FOIA request, Freedom of Information, by the watchdog and published by Fox News. It shows a string of communications between the NEA and the White House. The NEA, the National Education Association, is the largest teachers union in the United States. That's interesting. I have to confess, that's new news to me. I thought the UFT was the longest, unless the UFT has been renamed. Uh, I'm not aware of it. I usually don't follow the teachers union that closely, but and it, be that as it may, this is now the largest teachers union in this country, and it advocates for uh, teachers, educational professionals, including public school teachers, support personnel, faculty members at colleges and universities, etc. Email correspondence includes a draft statement from the NEA to the White House in which the teachers union criticizes the CDC over its masking guidance after it announced on May 13th that vaccinated people could stop wearing masks indoors and outdoors. Quote, We appreciate the developing nature of the science and its implications for guidance, but releasing the guidance without accompanying school-related updates creates confusion and fuels the internal politicization of this basic health and safety issue. This is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. The CDC has consistently said in studies support that mitigation measures, including to protect the most vulnerable, remain necessary in schools and institutions of higher learning, particularly because no elementary or middle school students and few high school students have been vaccinated. Well, the lethality overall of this virus, as I just said before, is extremely low. The lethality for children is even lower. 
so low, it's very difficult to even measure it. So if these teachers are so concerned, why don't they get vaccinated? And then they're protected, aren't you? That's what they want us to believe. The correspondence goes on. This will also make it hard for school boards and leaders of institutions of higher education to do the right thing by maintaining mitigation measures. It continues. We need CD clarification right away. The union said it was prepared to issue the critical statement and call for the CDC to issue new guidance providing greater clarity over masks in schools and release more rigorous mask recommendations. One day after the CDC's guidance went live, Erica Dinkel-Smith, the White House Director of Labor Engagement, said she stopped the NEA from releasing its critical statement. Following discussions and coordination with the White House, the NEA eventually released a much more relaxed statement, which reads, The CDC's current recommendation that schools continue to implement existing school-related guidance, including mandatory and correct use of wearing masks and continuing of social distancing, is an important welcome clarification about the protections that need to be in place in our schools. So I look, I want to ask this question, and I want you to ask yourselves this question. Because when you listen to a podcast, you're not just getting information. You're getting almost a form of, I'm not going to call it therapy, but we use the same model. I'm asking you a question that you should be asking yourselves. And maybe many of you have. But you need validation that you're not alone in asking this question of yourself. How long is this charade going to continue? How long are we going to go? First, they told everyone you had to get vaccinated. And the vaccination was going to be the panacea. It's going to protect us all. We don't have to worry. We're vaccinated, and now COVID's going to get behind us, and we're going to return to normalcy. Well, we've got a lot of people vaccinated in this country, and there's no one who wants a vaccine now who can't get it. They're giving it away, giving it away to people who come here illegally, giving it away in all manner of cities. New York City can line up and get it for free. So if anybody wants a vaccine, they can get it. I got the vaccine. I got it because my other businesses were being bankrupted because I wasn't vaccinated. I wasn't going to be allowed to run them. I didn't want it. I had to get it because it was financial suicide if I didn't. Now, my particular health insurance does not cover the vaccine. doesn't matter. Just say CDC is going to pay. The government's paying. So anyone who wants a vaccine can get one. So therefore, we have to assume any people who have not yet been vaccinated in the United States, probably don't want the vaccine. Now, are we going to compel people to get the vaccine? If a person has cancer, do we compel them to suffer the indignities of chemotherapy? If they're in stage four, they want to go out with a little dignity and a little less pain? Can we compel them? Now, you can argue this is a communicable disease. Yes, but hold it. The people who are worried about the communicable disease have gotten vaccinated. And those who have not gotten vaccinated are willing to accept the risks. So, what's the story? Are we going to start compelling people to get vaccinated? I'm telling you right now. My son just turned 13. I'm not letting him get vaccinated. There's no way. He's a very healthy boy. He's a strong boy. I'm not letting anyone put a needle in his arm for this thing. There's no need for it. And these masks are a crock of shit. The masks don't protect you like they want you to think it protects you. Do you ever see 
hospital staff wearing masks in operating room. Why do you think they do that? They do it to prevent their germs from getting on you because they're cutting you open and they're removing that valuable layer, your epithelial tissue, which protects your inner organs from infection. They're not worried about getting infected from you. They're protecting you from them. So if you're a person who's vaccinated and you're wearing a mask, that mask doesn't do anything for you because if someone coughs on you that has it, that isn't wearing a mask and it gets on the mask, it didn't get into your lungs, but it's on the mask. Now you touch the mask and you touch yourself and now you've got it. So this mask thing is rather dicey and it's sort of a one-way protection window. And I don't think that we want to have a country where we're all living in a perennial state of fear and in a perennial state of, of uh, worrying about not being infected with anything else. We have lived as long as we have and have mastered and defeated many diseases because of herd immunity, not because of taking vaccinations. And my other question is, given that these vaccines are not a panacea and that they do not protect us from the virus to the extent that it prevents us from getting it, but may just let us have lower symptoms, aren't we creating a bigger problem for the people who aren't vaccinated? Because now we walk around thinking we're protected from the virus. We contract it. We don't know that we have it because we've been vaccinated, so our symptoms are so mild as to not register on our radar as anything wrong. And now we go out and we spread it. So now because of this, we're all going to be destined to look like bank robbers and wear masks and act like idiots for the rest of our lives. The price is too high. The cure cannot be worse than the disease. But that's exactly what we're facing now. It's, it's poisoned everything. United Airlines has announced that any staff with a vaccine exemption will be placed on unpaid leave. Not paid leave, unpaid leave. Now, who are the people that are granted exemptions? People who have medical or religious exemption. That means if you have a medical reason why you can't take this vaccine that would be harmful to you, to take the vaccine. You have a, forget the religious exemption. People have a right to religious exemptions. So your choice here is you either have to violate your religious values or you have to place yourself at medical risk if you have a medical exemption and take this vaccine if you expect to not be put on leave and still be paid by United Airlines. Now, if I have a medical issue which prevents me from getting the vaccine and I'm working for, America, for United Airlines, you're trying to tell me that I have to, at the peril to my own health, take a vaccine just so I can continue to get paid? You're the one with the problem. You want to put me on leave? That's fine. You pay me. I'm willing to come to work. In memorandums to workers who have applied for an exemption to United's COVID-19 vaccination mandate, workers were told that they must become fully vaccinated against the virus that causes COVID-19 within five weeks if their submission is denied, or they will be separated from the company. So United Airlines is reserving to themselves the role of God. They're going to decide whether your submission meets with what they feel is religious or medical exemption. Employees who, 
whose accommodation requests are granted will be placed on leave for an undetermined amount of time, the memos obtained by the Epoch Times said. Given our focus on safety and steep increases in COVID infections, hospitalization, deaths, all employees who re- whose request is approved will be placed on temporary unpaid leave, unpaid personal leave on October 2nd, while specific safety measures for unvaccinated employees are instituted. In other words, just think about what I just said here, or what they've just said. We're going to decide if we're going to grant your exemption. We're going to look at your submission. If we deny you submission, you're separated from the company. That's a fancy term for meaning fired. And if we grant your submission, we say, yes, you have a legitimate medical uh, beef or religious grounds, you're still going on unpaid leave. You're not getting any money. Until we figure out how we're going to allow you people to come back to work that we think it's safe. Whether it takes them a month, two months, or three months, doesn't say. It's an un specified time. Quote, we can no longer allow unvaccinated people back into the workplace until we better understand how they might interact with our customers and their vaccinated co-workers, the company added, citing federal statistics that show a rise throughout the summer of COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations, though those metrics have fallen in some areas recently. This is incredible. It's just incredible. Job postings, though, not everybody's going through this mania. Um, Although by percentage, there's been a big increase in the number of job postings on these job sites that require you to be vaccinated in order to get the job. These postings represent less than 1% of all job ads on these sites. So it isn't like most people are buying uh, or falling for all this crap. Uh, But before we close out, A couple of other things I wanted to touch on. Uh, One story in particular is local and one is national. This is more uh, a story for comic relief. As you know, Governor Gavin Newsom is facing a recall election in California. I wonder why. The guy's a complete incompetent fool. Uh, And getting caught having dinner at that high-end restaurant with no social distancing while in the midst of the pandemic and telling everyone how they have to social distance and wear a mask and all the other stuff was a pretty, pretty embarrassing thing for him, and I think it's coming back to bite him. But he had some help on the campaign trail. He had Vice President Kamala Harris, the former senator from California, returning to her home state of California to campaign for the governor. Now, if I was looking to have help campaigning for governor, the last person I would call would be Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris couldn't survive one frigging primary. She dropped out before the first primary in the presidential race because that's how unpopular she was. So if you're looking for help, Calling Kamala Harris to help you retain your governorship in California, Mr. Newsom, is rather like a drowning man clutching at a razor blade. Uh, So good luck to you in that. Here in New York is a little story that I wanted to highlight. Those of you probably know that we have the most anti-police mayor that we've ever had in New York City probably since John Lindsay. And John Lindsay was pretty anti-police. I'll never forget that when uh, Officer Cardillo was murdered in cold blood with his own gun in an ambush in the Harlem Mosque. Movies were made about this. Books were written about it. 
The chief of detectives resigned over it. The mayor didn't even go to that officer's funeral, which is unheard of. Well, we have someone who's equally bad. We have Bill de Blasio. Now, Bill de Blasio and his ilk are putting the head of the New York City Sergeant Benevolent Association's union on trial. Now, why is he on trial? He's on trial supposedly because he posted some confidential uh, information, a confidential arrest report of Bill de Blasio's daughter. Well, I've got news for you, ladies and gentlemen. There's no such thing as a confidential arrest report. An arrest report is a public record. Let me read something to you from the New York Post. Get a chance, a sense of what I'm talking about. The outspoken head of the NYPD sergeant, and this is why he's being put on trial, because he is outspoken. The PBA run by that pathetic excuse of a um, President Patrick Lynch has been deafeningly silent on many of these things coming out of 1PP and City Hall, but not Ed Mullins. Ed Mullins is a stand-up guy. He's being put on trial, again, for sharing this confidential, which is not confidential, arrest report. He's facing a trio of charges, uh, all stemming from the department's patrol guide, after he tweeted an unredacted file from the arrest of Chiara de Blasio during the George Floyd protests, where she blocked traffic and a whole bunch of other things, which contained her personal information, such as her date of birth, address, and driver's license number. Now, this arrest was not voided at the precinct level. It went on to have to be disposed of by the DA's office. When that happens, it's a public record. It isn't like somebody got arrested for something that was completely wrong, and the desk sergeant says, no, this is nonsense, get rid of it, and they void it out. This thing was a public record. Now, the prosecutor for the NYPD is alleging that he should not have exposed the information, and he failed to notify internal affairs of the violation. Uh, well, first of all, the, the attorney for Mr. Mullins, or Sergeant Mullins, makes a very, very interesting argument here. One, it's his First Amendment right to do so. But secondly, this unredacted version of the report that uh, Sergeant Mullins is charged with posting on Twitter was already tweeted by a reporter from the Daily Mail. Now, I'd like to know, it's an interesting question, I'd like to know, I'd like to see if the Post or somebody else can, can give us some information on this. Shoot me an email if you can. And by the way, our new email address, in case you haven't heard, is Jamie Dury, that's J-A-M-I-E, D-U-R-I-E, 1776, the numbers, 1776, at gmail.com. I'd like to know if the account, the Twitter account of the Daily Mail reporter who first tweeted this thing was temporarily suspended, because they temporarily suspended Sergeant Mullins's account, did Twitter. But I'd like to know if they also suspended the Daily Mail reporter. So if a reporter already put it out there, it's public knowledge. It's in the public domain. It's public information. He's not doing anything. Quinn said Mullins was acting in his capacity as a union head, lobby, lobbying for a stronger police response to the protests, and that his tweets were covered by the First Amendment. He's being targeted as a scapegoat for being a critic, and I absolutely believe that. Sergeant Mullins, we wish you Godspeed. We wish you great luck and success in this trial. It's a kangaroo court. 
I don't hold out much hope because I don't think it's a fair court. I've been very critical of this court in the past, uh, particularly when they fired Officer Daniel Pantaleo. We wrote an extensive article on that, uh, one of the longest articles I ever wrote, proving how the man was innocent. So we wish you luck in your quest. One last personal note. I made an oblique reference to the current president of the New York City PBA, Patrick Lynch. I have no like for Patrick Lynch. He's done nothing for New York City police officers the entire time that he's been the president, and he's been the president since 1999. Prior to Lynch taking over the union, it was run for a year by Doc Savage, who'd been a vice president, prior to that time by Lou Matarazzo. And prior to that, Lou Matarazzo had it for about four or five years. It was run for the better part of 15 years. He retired in his last year of his last term by a man who fundamentally changed that union from what it was to what it became. And that was Mr. Phil Caruso, a finer man, a finer gentleman, an advocate for cops you'd never want to find. He piloted that union studiously for 15 years. And he probably could have run it for even longer. But Phil became an unfortunate victim, I think, to a certain degree, of the hiring practices and the fiscal problems of New York City. When Phil took over in 1980 as the head of the PBA, what you had is a department that was aging. And starting in December of 79, there was a, a furious period of hiring in the NYPD. So that by the time Phil reached his fourth term, his membership had completely changed. Almost all of the members of the PBA were people who came on after he became elected president of the PBA. So they had no one to compare him to. All those who had been in the PBA when he took over had either long since retired or gotten promoted and gone on to bigger and better things. So Phil was already getting up in years, and so he retired. But he fundamentally changed that union. Well, after a long battle with cancer, surviving that, then a battle with COVID and surviving that, Phil had an unfortunate accident in his home where he fell out of his hospital bed, and he declined rather quickly. He passed away last month. One would think, after 15 years of faithful service as the president of the union and countless years as a New York City police officer, that that coward that sits at the head of the PBA now, Patrick Lynch, who goes to every BS ribbon-cutting ceremony there is, would have shown up at either Phil Caruso's wake or his funeral. And he did neither. I have nothing but disrespect and contempt for Patrick Lynch. And the day he leaves as president of the PBA will be a very good day for that union. Thanks for listening. I'm Jamie Dury.